Um, this is from Revelation chapter 21 through 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chiroprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the, from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every, um, excuse me, each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So last Sunday, uh, if you weren't here, um, we started a new um, a, a look at Christian hope, and Ev kicked us off uh, with that theme, and we're going to stick with that theme uh, all the way through Christmas. Uh, can you focus on hope too much? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. Um, on Wednesday evening, uh, we're, we're doing these talk hopes during the week, and on Wednesday evening, Wesley Hill reminded us that the Christian faith places us in a story that our own lives and the life of the whole world have a beginning and a middle and an end, which is like super obvious. But the point is like, we're headed somewhere. We're headed somewhere. Uh, we are people on the way. Now, it, the thing about stories, and you know this, is that not all stories end well. Uh, some stories are tragedies. Like they end with faith that has been misplaced or hope that goes unfulfilled or love that is unrequited. Uh, they end with Leo DiCaprio shivering and sinking into the icy waters beside the Titanic. Or, or they end with Juliet waking up from her sleep just in time to see Romeo, also in one version played by Leo DiCaprio, <laughs> uh, uh, thinking her dead, and, and he's taken poison, and, and uh, they die side by side, and it's just, you know, you want to cry about that. The Christian story, however, as we've heard from the passage that Debbie read, it ends well. It ends well. It's a story of hope. And, and what makes it a story of hope is that it's not just our story, and it's not just the story of the world. Uh, it's, it's the story of God. It's the story of God. It's God's story. The amazing claim of the gospel is that in and as the person of Jesus, God has made our story his own. God's made your story his. So last week, Ev, Ev pointed out that that really uh, Christian hope is much more about a noun than it is about a verb. And, and today, I think we can go even farther and say not only is Christian hope a noun, Christian hope is a proper noun. Uh, Jesus Christ is our hope. 
That's what Paul says in the opening of his first letter to Timothy. Jesus is our hope. Christian hope is ultimately a person. Uh, it's his story that makes our stories God's story. And so this is how I'm going to try to organize the sermon series between now and Christmas. And to be really honest with you, I'm not sure that it's going to work at all. Um, but we're going to look at the story of Jesus Christ. And week by week, we're going to look at different stages of his life. But we're going to start at the end and move to the beginning. We're going to read his story backwards, so to speak, starting with his return and then moving through his ascension and his resurrection, his death, his suffering, his incarnation, and then finally, on Christmas Eve, his anticipation. And all along the way, we're going to focus on how these different stages of the life of Jesus, they provide hope to us and they encourage hope in us. And doing it like this is going to lead to some really awkward situations like talking about Advent themes and singing about Advent themes on November 12th, you know, several weeks before Advent has begun, and talking about Holy Week themes, like right smack dab in the middle of Advent. Oh, awkward. To those of you whose sensibilities are offended by such things, I apologize. And I remind you that this is what you get for attending a church that is uh, not Anglican and just barely Presbyterian. <laughs> So Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. And Debbie has read the end of the story for us. Uh, this is where the world is headed. This is where the world is headed. The author, John, he's pulling back the curtain and saying, here's your future. Uh, here's what's on the way. You can't see it yet, but this is coming. This is coming. And in this vision of the end, is an invitation to live your life today in light of the unseen future for which you wait. Um, to let what you hope for shape what you live for. And so let's take a little tour with John of the new world that Jesus brings at his return. What do we see? You know, John, uh, you remember, he loves sevens. And, and he, he points out seven things um, that he kind of gets at the new creation by telling us what, what's not going to be there. What's not going to be there? Um, look, at, look at chapter 22, verse 3. We, we learn that in the new creation, no longer will there be anything a curse. And literally it says, no longer will there be any curse. No curse in the new creation. Um, what does that call to mind? It calls to mind Genesis chapter 3, the curse of the fall. When Jesus returns, he's, he will bring with him like the fruit of all that he's accomplished by his life. In death and resurrection, he'll make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. The curse will be removed. Shalom will be restored. The whole creation will again be a place of flourishing and beauty and delight. Um, everything else that John shows us in, in this passage is the result of the curse being removed. So, And so another thing that we notice is absent from the new creation. Look at uh, chapter 21, verse 1. The sea was no more. Sea was no more. Uh, I'm totally fine with that because sharks. <laughs> but some of you, some of you love the sea. And so this might sound like a real bummer. Uh, but remember the significance of this. Um, John's, for, for John's first century readers, the sea was this place of like chaos and evil and these dark, mysterious powers at work in the world to undo us and to overwhelm God's good world. And, and so the point here is not that there's not going to be any, like, surfing and sunbathing. Uh, the point is that, like, this dark, chaotic, threatening power 
will be no more. It'll have no place in God's new world. To use the language of Ecclesiastes, um, there will be no more what? Hevel. No more Hevel. No more Hevel. Which leads to, this, to the next observation John makes about what's missing from the new creation. In verse 4, we learn that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Wow. I mean, it's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Because these are like some of the most salient features of our everyday reality. Like you turn on the news and you're reminded immediately of like the suffering in Israel and in Gaza and in Russia and Ukraine. And um, we're also reminded by the world's suffering just in all kinds of personal ways. We've been touched by death and pain and sorrow. Like we just live our lives in the presence of these grim realities. But in the new creation, they're no more. It's hard to imagine. You know, hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, um, he had a vision of the new creation and he expressed the wonder of it as best he could. He said, no more shall there be in it an infant who dies but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the point that Isaiah is making there is clear enough that like death's rule and death's way in the world will be significantly weakened. But John's vision here in Revelation is even clearer. He's saying it's not, it's not just that death will be weakened, it's that death will be utterly abolished, um, utterly removed. Death shall be no more. You remember the Apostle Paul, he writes that, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here at the end of the story, we see that it has finally happened, that death itself has died. Here's another absence. We see that in the new creation, there will be no more sinning, no more sinners, no more sin. And that makes sense. Uh, if the wages of sin is death, there's no more death, like those wages aren't being paid anymore. It must be because the work that earns those wages has stopped. It must be finished too. And sure enough, that's what we see. In verse 8, we learn that the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars will be excluded from the new creation. Which sounds a lot like you and I will be excluded from the new creation. <laughs> Although I have no idea. I mean... Who are sorcerers? Who's the modern-day modern sorcerer? I'm not sure. Um, but, it, I mean, no. John is giving us, like, this vivid warning and reminding us of the importance of continuing on in faithful, hopeful endurance. Like, the importance of following the Lamb wherever he goes. Wherever he goes. And so, here again, family, we're left at the end of the day with trusting Jesus. Um, uh, trusting that uh, he's going to be the one to sort us out, that he will be the one to deal with our cowardice and our faithlessness and our immorality and our idolatry. Like the only people, John is saying, who will be in the new creation are those who have been judged by Jesus and who have been conformed to his image. And so in, in this new world, we'll no longer need to fear sinning against others. And we'll no longer need to fear being sinned against. Like sin and sinners just won't be a part of this new reality. They, they won't have a place at the end of the story. Um, and because sinners and sin won't have a place in the new story, it makes sense that 
the next thing, or another thing that John shows us is that there won't be any closed gates in the new creation. No closed gates. When the new Jerusalem descends, we learn that there are gates like on every side of the community. It's like the ultimate gated community, which just sounds horrible. Until you realize that all the gates are always open. I mean, what's the point of having gates? Gates are meant to provide uh, protection. They're meant to provide safety. They're, they're meant to control who, who goes out and, and who comes in. But in verse 25, we're told that these gates will never be shut. Like, they're on every side of the city, and they're always open. What's the point? Well, the point is that when Jesus returns and makes all things new, like, God's people are going to be totally safe completely secure like there will be nothing to fear nothing violent nothing destructive is coming in to this community the world's broken relationships will be transformed into a city of security and delight uh, this is a beautiful promise of like relational restoration and eternal hospitality it's like family that it's it's like the people of god have have here at the end, like, fulfilled their mission to be a blessing to the nations. You remember that? Like, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, true Israel has always existed to bless the Gentiles, to bless the foreigners, to bless those who aren't already a part of the community. And at the end, we see the fulfillment of it because no one will be excluded and will have nothing to fear. The gates are always open. Another reality John uh, points out is that there's no physical temple in the city. Um, remember, the, the temple in the Old Testament is the place where like, God's presence dwelled. The, the, the temple is the place where you go if you want to encounter God. And uh, so, so we might wonder, how is this not in the new creation? Well, we learn in verse 22 that the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It's like there's no need for a temple in the end because God's presence will fill the whole world. It's like the whole world will be the temple of God. And in fact, that's exactly what John shows us. In verses 16 and 17, he gives us the dimensions of the city. And, and the dimensions are like uh, a cube. It's like this, it corresponds to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And, and so it's like John's point is that the new city, the new Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. The new creation is the temple. Here at the end, God's glorious presence fills the entire world. Not just one place, not one part of it. But the whole, whole world is filled with the glory of God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that another absence to which John draws our attention is darkness. There's no darkness in the new creation. You know, throughout scripture, light is often associated with uh, the power and the presence of God. In the opening verses of Genesis, you remember we read, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, what? Let there be light and there was light. And so the very first thing that God does after creating um, heavens and the earth is he creates light and what's so interesting is that he creates light before he creates any other source of light that we know of, like before the sun exists, before the stars exist. Um, and the point, I think, is theological that God himself is the source of light. And that's what we see here. 
The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So you see, maybe there will be a sun and moon in the new creation, maybe not. But uh, whether or not those, those realities are there, they won't be needed for their light. God's glory is bright enough for the whole world. You know, here and now, um, and we, we've heard this, we've been reminded of it in our praying, um, in our singing. Here and now, darkness is a reality. Uh, and, and Christian hope doesn't try to cover over this. It doesn't paint an unrealistically uh, rosy picture of our situation. It doesn't say, like, cheer up. Things aren't so bad. It's no. Things are bad. Like, there is real darkness in the world. This imagery of darkness, when it's taken up in Scripture, is often a way of portraying the absence of shalom. It's a way, it's a way of saying, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, shalom, you remember, is that rich Hebrew word that is, is it's about, like, relational flourishing in all dimensions of life. Um, with, with God, with, with each other, with our very selves, with, with the rest of the created order. Um, think, think about how much darkness there is in all, in all of these areas, like creation. We, we experience natural disasters and droughts and floods and disease and pandemics. Um, think about our relationships with other people. We experience like wars and all kinds of oppression and exploitation and injustice. We experience broken marriages and um, betrayals and friendships. We experience abandonment. Think about our relationships with ourselves. I mean, um, so many of us wrestle regularly with loneliness, guilt, shame, despair, not to mention like the, the breaking apart of our bodies Sickness, sin, death. And think about our relationship with God. I mean, um, how many of you are just like, have this rich abiding relationship with Jesus 24-7? Just feels rich and life-giving. See, uh, like, no, we kinda, we're kind of up and down. We're in and out. Like, how many of us love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time? Mixed bags. See, here and now, darkness can feel downright pervasive. On Wednesday, um, Wes shared a quote from Richard Bauckham, who says this, Christian hope is oriented towards God's promised future and lives now ever in the light cast backwards by that future. It looks beyond the often dark and unbearable experiences of the here and now, refusing to accept the suffering, injustice, lack, and loss, which characterize so much of life, and reaches upwards to, um, sorry, and reaches not upwards to a spiritual escape hatch from this world, but forwards to a time when such things will cease, and the pain and loss be redeemed and refashioned into something good, and, and enduring. You see, family, the, the promise of Christian hope is that dawn is coming, that the light of the world has come and will come again. 
Um, in the new creation, darkness will be banished and we will live in the brilliance of the glory of God. Um, so, so this is the end of the story we're living in. Um, we're living in it because it's not just our story, it's God's story. God has taken our story and made it his own. And now I just, I invite you to look with me at the one at the center of it all. In John's vision, what makes the end of the story so good and beautiful? What makes the world again this place of shalom, this, this place of flourishing and delight? Um, it's nothing less than the very presence of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Um, do you know that this is what your heart longs for? That, that this is the one, um, this is the longing of your heart like beneath and behind all the other longings. You know, what you really want is not just to be part of a really cool city with a lot of cool, like, mysterious, unknown jewels uh, with, with gates that are always open. Um, you want uh, to be included in the very life of God. This is what C.S. Lewis got at so beautifully in his essay, The Weight of Glory. You know, he, he says, like, so often we think that what we're after is maybe, like, a really nice neighborhood or a beautiful sunset or a good time with friends or a romantic evening with our beloved. And those are all good things. Those are all good things. But he says, like, our inconsolable secret, that's his language, is that beneath and behind all these longings is a desire for the ultimate reality of God himself. These little stabs of joy, that's what Lewis calls them, that we experience along the way, um, which are wonderful but never fully satisfying, they're clues. They're clues that we are made for something so much more than anything the created world has to offer. And see, family, God's promise is that we'll have it. Because God's promise is that we'll have him. We'll have him. Um, the story we're living in is not a tragedy. It's not a sad story of unrequited love. It's a joyful story of love fulfilled. God will be with us, and we will be his people, and he will be our God. As we read in 22, verse 4, um, we will see the face of Jesus. We will see the face of the slain lamb, the one who has always pursued us, the one who has always seen us and known us and loved us, even even when we've turned our backs on him, even when we've run and hid in fear and shame, the one who has always loved us um, with a perfect love, even to the point of laying down his life for us, will come and be ours, and we will be his. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Um, so much of Christian hope is about waiting. It's about waiting uh, because we're people who haven't yet arrived. Like our life as Christians is always life on the way and, and hope is for people who are on the way. Like we're living between the already and the not yet of God's inbreaking new creation. On Wednesday, Wes reminded us that as we wait, our waiting isn't passive. Uh, Christian hope is never about like sitting back and twiddling your thumbs and just saying, ah, there's nothing for me to do. God's going to take care of it. No, Wes said, um, Christian hope involves us in all kinds of protest, in all kinds of participation as we see this huge gap between the way things are supposed to be and the way things are now. 
So we have this vision of the world to come, this future that's promised by God, and then we let it like fill our imaginations and shape our desires, and then we move out in hope, empowered by the Spirit, praying for the coming of God's new world and putting up all kinds of little signposts pointing to the reality to come, offering the world all kinds of little fortes. Hey, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to be like here and now. You know, James, in his little letter, he says that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And I think the same thing can be said about hope, that hope without works is dead. Neil Planiga puts it like this. He says, without costly action, hope can soften into sentimentality. With costly action, hope may harden into reality. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for our hopes to harden into reality. I've been reading a new biography that just came out this year on the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And just this past week, I was reading about uh, the 1963 March on Washington, King's famous I Have a Dream speech, which is so familiar to you all. But um, I've been, so all that to say, I've been thinking about King's life. And in, in preparing, I was just imagining like, what would it have been like for, for King to have this vision, which was so profoundly shaped by Scripture, by the Old Testament prophets in particular, by this promise of the new world to come, for him to have it, but then never to risk anything. Like, you know, never to, um, to move out in costly works of love. Like, but just to say, ah, oh, it's coming. So I'll, I'll sit back and I'll trust God um, to bring about this better world. He said, I do trust God to bring about this better world, and so I'm going to move out in action. That's Christian hope. That's Christian hope. Hope without works is dead. And so we wait, but as we wait, we work, trusting that our labor is not in vain. Family, I wonder what kind of hopeful, costly action the Spirit might lead you to this week. Pray about that. Pray about that. The one who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. He says, he says, ah, these words, take them or leave them. No, no, he doesn't say that. He says, these words are trustworthy. They're true. This is God's promise for us. And so, family, hold on to hope, which is just to say hold on to Jesus Christ. Hold on to the one who holds on to you. Amen. I'm going to lead us in prayer.